Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a parable seemingly written for our present historical moment, this week's reading from Matthew dynamites any and all claims made by any and all people on social, moral, economic, civic, legal, or cultural dominance. Pharisees and Herodians, the would-be government of Jerusalem, want to take control away from Caesar's sitting government, itself a religion organized around a self-proclaimed son of God. Each party wants control of the temple palace complex. That last bit is critical. The temple and the palace were a single institution in the ancient world. That's why the Pharisees dragged the Herodians into the debate. In Matthew, this debate is not between church and state, as is often and cheaply claimed, but between two human religious factions, Jews and Gentiles, each self-organized around the lust for power. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. May the Lord bless your Thanksgiving table with gratitude for his bounty heaped generously upon our unkindness toward one another, and may he have mercy upon us. Amen. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 356 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Correct! He is not partial. And the way of truth is not a philosophical truth. It's factual, meaning what is the actual text that is written, that is the currency of any communion in the synagogue or the temple. That, for Jesus, is what we're talking about when we, in the New Testament, refer to aletheia. It's not a philosophical truth. But just by virtue of dragging the Herodians into the conversation, just by virtue of that fact, in conjunction with their intent to entrap him, we already know where this story is going. And you can see the trick that they're playing here. What they're trying to say is, okay, Jesus, you believe only in God. You trust only in God. You trust only in Scripture. Therefore, for you... One human being counts as much as another human being. 
So since we know that you believe that no human being is any higher or lower than any other human being, do you treat any human being differently than other human beings? If that's the case, then we would expect you wouldn't treat Caesar any differently than you would treat a little child. This is the way that they're setting it up. They're setting it up with a presupposition that if you believe in God, then you must not see any difference among human beings, that everyone is equal in your mind because there is nothing among human beings that is compatible with this understanding of God and God alone. It's all fine and dandy to say that Caesar's just another guy, so can't you just be impartial, Jesus? But it's a lie. It's an empirical lie, because Caesar's opinion on earth is not equal to the opinion of the Herodians. Caesar's opinion on earth is definitely not equal to the Pharisees and the scribes. And in worldly terms, the least equal to Caesar in the eyes of the world is Jesus Christ. And the trick of the Herodians, the game they're playing, is to fool Jesus into justifying their rebellion against Caesar. They want him to take a side. This is the Gospel of Matthew. They're still defending a plot of land in Palestine. They still don't get it. It's really difficult for people in this culture to understand it because Westerners really believe in their platonic equality. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, before you can accept and understand what it means that the Gospel is above, you have to first be honest that Caesar, in worldly terms, is above you, and until now, your interest is to become Caesar, which is why the sheikh sitting on his throne teaching is an irritant for you. You want him to be one of you, but he can't be when he's sitting on that chair holding the book. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. Money is what the government creates so that you can hold your wealth in your hand. As opposed to having a storehouse full of wheat, you can sell your wheat and you can have coins. It's much more convenient than having the wheat you transform it into the coins and now you can use those coins to buy things. And this goes back to the statement you were making before, Father, when you're talking about the whole illusion that the land belongs to human beings, that I own this parcel, you own that parcel. You know, it's funny because I remember when I was a little kid in school, they would teach us. The thing about Native Americans is they believed that the whole earth belonged to everybody, which was very different from the Europeans. Sadly, they're right because the Europeans were not following their own scripture, which says that the entire earth belongs to God and not to any human being. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time reading Deuteronomy for Ephesus School at St. Elizabeth, and, you know, you are either a sojourner living in the land, or you are an Israelite who is commanded to live as if you were a foreigner in the land which means that either actually or functionally you are a foreigner in the land because it belongs to God. Money is the same thing. Money doesn't belong to you. It's given to you. It's given away. As soon as we think of money as ours, then we have a problem. When they say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? I mean, 
what are you giving to Caesar? Are you giving him a piece of your power and wealth? Or are you giving him a trinket that he made to show that he's in control of the economy? That's the question. Their hypocrisy is that they believe that money is something. They can say, oh, we don't believe in Caesar. But as soon as you believe in money, you believe in Caesar. Money is the illusion of propriety predicated on the ego of the controlling power in the land. I understand that you're going to tell me we're a democracy, Father Mark, but if you don't think that in order to rule, government manifests ego, you're still thinking in philosophical categories and not looking at how things work on the ground. The way to think about the coin from the perspective of Jesus is as follows. This land is already the property of my father. There's a new currency. This currency means nothing to me. Just try to spend a Soviet ruble in Moscow today. The ruble crashed overnight. My wife tells me the story from her teenage years. It crashed overnight. People had saved for years. And all of it had no value because power changed hands. So while the Lord, through his gospel, does not participate in your politics, you're a fool if you think he doesn't judge your politics. And unfortunately, most teachers interpret that as a mandate to pick a side. But the only side is the side of the throne of the gospel, which has no interest in progressive politics and no interest in conservative politics, except to expose all of it as a platonic fraud. Your very categories of liberal and conservative are made up. They are terms of convenience. We've heard for centuries in the study of Torah that you must have two or three witnesses, and you are now held hostage by a duopoly that will never resolve any problem in this country because you have two political egos battling each other with no tiebreaker. The very system rules out the necessity of compromise. The good news for us is that God is the tiebreaker, whether you have two parties, three parties, or ten parties. And he breaks the tie with wrath and destruction through his judgment. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This currency has no value. It means nothing to me. It's a trinket. Of what value is this for me? It says here that Caesar is your God. If it holds value for you, that means you haven't accepted my father's kingdom yet. And that's bad news for you because this is my father's land. You Pharisees and Herodians are making a big deal out of this money. I like you said, only believe in the things that are of God, this money is not of God. So why do I care? If Caesar wants him back, I'll give him back. This is how I know I'm a sinner, because I believe that these things have value. That's why I have a pin code on my ATM card, because I believe that the money belongs to me. I can just make it one, two, three, four, and just put it in Sharpie on the card and just leave it at the ATM. 
anyone wants to use it, use it. You know, if you need the money, fine, get the money. It's not my money anyway. This is how Jesus is functioning. Whatever your feelings about money are, you have to go back to this reading and understand that your feelings about money are incorrect. Are you going to change your feelings? I don't know. That's up to you. I don't know if I'm going to change my feelings, but I'll tell you what, my feelings are incorrect. This is the correct reading. But this view of money is under judgment. Just like I believe that I bought the land under my house, just like I believe I have money in the bank, just the fact that I believe I have is an illusion because I don't see it anymore as a gift that was lent to me by the owner. I see myself as the owner, and this is the problem of anyone who believes that whatever parcel they live on of this earth belongs to them. The typical Christian interpretation of this text, and it is an interpretation that is concocted, it's not dealing with the currency of the text, the coin, if you will, of the biblical realm, is to say that this is about the separation of church and state. This is incorrect. It's not a matter of opinion. I'm not saying to you, I think this is incorrect. I'm saying to you, as if we were looking at an engineering schematic or a mathematical formula, that this is incorrect. That is not what is there in the text. There is no separation of church and state. There is God against human beings who are sitting in his chair. I'm not talking about theocracy, because remember, sociologically, the biblical teaching emasculated Caesar without dethroning him historically, because ultimately Matthew is interested in the treasure in heaven. But the fact remains that the gospel emasculated Caesar so that he would no longer exist in the minds of baptized Christians. That's why the only valid stance when you sit on the seat of Moses to teach is to critique whoever is sitting on the king's throne be it a president, a prime minister, a political party, a powerful leader. It doesn't matter. Whoever is exercising power in the land is under judgment because much has been entrusted to them, and they can't but sin because they're human beings. So the greater judgment falls on them from the perspective of the Amvon. This is so important because when we fail to stand up to propaganda and to gaslighting and to the breakdown of people's ability to reason, affectionately called the epistemological crisis, we are not pastoring and we are not shepherding. We are opening the door and inviting Satan in and handing our people over to him as lambs for the slaughter. We have no right to abdicate our duty to teach and to critique. I'm bringing this up, Richard, because this is the text people use to tell the priest to stay in his lane. And that's invalid. It's also invalid when clergy take a political stand. I'm not saying that you should engage in politics. 
I'm saying that you should take a stand against the world on all sides. You take a stand against politics. That's the only way to do it, because politics is the business of the police, the business of the city. The city belongs to God insofar as it belongs to the land. It is situated on the land, and the land is God's. But God in the prophet says that he's going to turn a city into pasture land. He doesn't need the city. What does the city offer him? He wants the land so that all creatures can live off the land, not just the human beings, because we know, just like we see with coronavirus, as human beings expand, they distress the animals. They distress the other creatures that God has created. They distress the way that the earth was formed. And when you say, Father, that we're debating between church and state, there's an assumption underpinning that, which is that the church and or the state own anything. What is the church? The church is a bunch of people saying we are the church. And what is the state? A bunch of people saying we are the state. But neither one is referring to Scripture, or they do so after the fact. But there are no borders in Scripture. There are no passports in the Scripture. The people are inside and outside of the religious congregation. I mean, in Abraham's house, it was whoever happened to be living in his tent then. They were in. They weren't blood relatives. They weren't even related. Did they agree with each other? Did they like each other? Not discussed. Not important. Not a criterion. They lived in the tent. Therefore, they were a part of the tent. That's it. This assumption that these different things belong to different people is the problem. This is the same presupposition that Jesus is undermining when people are arguing, who does the money belong to, me or Caesar? That assumes one of you owns anything. Well, who owns Jerusalem, the Jews or the Romans? Well, that assumes that either Jews or Romans own land, right? This is what Jesus is doing. Washington, D.C. does not belong to Republicans or Democrats. It belongs to God. Now, who does the Congress belong to? The Congress belongs to America because America invented Congress. God did not invent Congress. It is not the thing of God. The land is God's, but Congress, the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, none of it belongs to God. It's America's. So let America have their laws, let America have their Congress, let America have this, but never for one minute is a Christian allowed to say that Washington, D.C. belongs to the Democrats or to the Republicans. It belongs only to God. Let me explain functionality for our listeners in succinct terms with a clear example. Americans believe in the separation of church and state. They really do. And they've separated traditional religions from the seat of governance, which I have no problem with. I don't believe in any religion's ability to govern adequately. I'm a disciple of Scripture. The whole tradition of Scripture is a critique of people who rule on earth, not an endorsement. But if you think that we have a separation of church and state, you are thinking in philosophical categories, you are thinking in ontological categories, you think that because you don't name something a religion, it isn't a religion. Look at how the ideologies of the different political parties function. 
in the absence of a state religion, they have emerged as moral theologies, self-righteous moral theologies. And that's what's causing the rift in this country. You have two religions battling for power. So don't tell me you have a separation of church and state. You have the same problem that every society in history has had. Who is in control of the morality and who is in control of the values and the laws? My first summer back from St. Vladimir's, Richard, hit me like a ton of bricks. I came into the Twin Cities. I was crossing the river and I looked up. It was nighttime. And illuminated on one side, I saw the state capitol. And illuminated on the other side, I saw the Cathedral of St. Paul. In my own hometown, in the godforsaken wilderness of the Midwest, the ancient Near East was staring me in the face. The temple and the palace. You're going to convince me that things have changed? And as soon as we believe that either one of those belongs to anyone but God and that God will do whatever he wants with either one of those and in fact is doing whatever he wants with both of them. Then we understand where Jesus is coming from. If this is God's cathedral, then he does whatever God wants with it. If this is a human being's cathedral, then the humans do what they want with it. But you have to understand which side you stand on. And if God is going to do what God wants with it, okay, then you leave it to God. Then you render it to God. If you're going to render it to God, then it is a function of Scripture. I mean, during the Communist Revolution, when the peasants were saying, look at the gold, look at the fine adornments of the churches, why was this not used to feed the poor? It's actually a good question. Why was it? Now, what ended up happening is that the state took it over. (laughs) So that was a battle between church and state. Who owns the churches, the church or the state? And of course, based on this reading, we know it's an invalid question. It belongs to God. As people argued and fought over the proprietorship, blood was shed, people suffered, and guess what? The peasants still starved because no one was there to take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger because no one neither church nor state, cared about the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. They should be amazed. Not at Caesar, not at the illusion of wealth, not at the illusion of their own propriety or their desire to control the land. They should be amazed that simply by speaking a word, Jesus dethroned Everyone, the synagogue, the Herodians who are a political party vying for power on the basis of the synagogue, and Caesar, who is himself a god in the minds of the people. He dethroned all of his opponents, the political players who claim to have a stake on power in the land that belongs to God. Wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord. To him be the glory. Take care, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.